Hello, Menlo Church. I'm Dr. Brenda Salter McNeil, and I just wanted to take a moment to say a personal greeting to you, to tell you how much I am honored to, to be your speaker today. My heart is so for your church. I've been there before. It's been my honor to come, and it's been many years. And I just want you to know that more than anything, I'm your sister in Christ. I really thank God for the longevity and the history of your church and all that God has done through you. And I just know that as we live in times that continue to change. God continues to stretch us and help us to grow so that we can continue to be representatives of the kingdom of God here on earth as it is in heaven. And my prayer is that this sermon on a journey will literally inspire you to know that this work of reconciliation is not a destination. It's an ongoing spiritual journey that we're all on. And so may God bless you as you embark continuing on your journey to being the church that God has called you to be, where people from every tribe and every nation find a place to be in the presence of God together. I truly hope this word will bless you today. I'm honored to be your preacher this morning and invite you now to look with me uh, at the scripture in Acts chapter 10, verses 28 through 35. This is what the word of God says. He said to them, Peter said to them, you are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate or to visit a Gentile. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without raising any objection. May I ask why you sent for me? Cornelius answered, Three days ago, I was in my house praying at this hour, at three in the afternoon. Suddenly, a man in shining white clothes stood before me and said, Cornelius, God has heard your prayer and remembered your gifts to the poor. Send to Joppa for Simon, who is called Peter. He is a guest in the home of Simon the Tanner, who lives by the sea. So I sent for you immediately and it was good for you to come. Now we are all here in the presence of God to listen to everything the Lord has commanded you to tell us. Then Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord, I pray now that you would cause the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts to be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. And the people of God said, amen and amen. Well, in every generation, I believe there are seismic shifts, seismic cultural shifts that wake us up to the reality of what's going on in the world around us. I call them catalytic events. And these catalytic events tend to shake us and wake us up. They make us move out of our comfort zones and they beckon us on a journey that we didn't even know we needed to take. That's exactly what happened to me in 2014 when I was invited to go with a group of clergy from all over the country to Ferguson, Missouri. 
It was at the beginning of the Black Lives Matter movement, and it had come after another tragedy of a young Black man being killed by police. And as clergy, we were asked to come to be in a space where we could together discern how the church should respond. So as we went there, the second night, we made arrangements to meet with a group of Black uh, young people who were the activists leading this movement. And as we went, we talked with them and we came. Many of us had on clergy collars and looked official and uh, they weren't impressed. They told us exactly how they felt about the church. They told us that they uh, didn't trust the church, that they were no longer looking for the church to lead them. They had no confidence that Christians cared about social justice and change like in the days of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. So they began to tell us what they hated about the church. And I'm telling you, it hurt to hear it too. They said, we hate your misogyny. We hate your hypocrisy. We hate your silence. In the, in the face of racial injustice. We hate your exclusion of the LGBTQ community. It looks like you work harder to keep people out than to let them in. Well, sometimes when you can't say amen, you just gotta say ouch. And that's kind of what happened to us that night. And so as we left, we all talked together and we made a promise. We made a promise to them and we made a promise to ourselves that we would do better. We made up our mind that we had to somehow recapture the confidence and the credibility of the church with this generation who no longer believed that the people of God were relevant. Little did I know that that promise was gonna be put to the test just two days later. Two days later, we were in our final session and a young man who was there with us, a young clergy person uh, who I didn't know, but he seemed to fall ill and he doubled over. And so someone sitting next to him kind of put their arms around him and helped him to go out into the hallway. And we thought maybe he was sick or something like that. But late, later we heard him wailing, crying in the hallway. So we stopped our session. We all went out to see what was going on with him. And that's when we learned that he had received a message, a text message, letting him know that the officers in New York City who had strangled a man named Eric Gardner choked him and for 11 times he kept saying, I can't breathe and he died and everyone saw it. And so everyone thought, at least in the black community, that there would be an indictment. That day was the day that that young man received a text saying that there would be no indictment for anyone after that incident had happened, no one was being held accountable and he was brokenhearted. As he began to weep and wail and we were lamenting with him and praying with and over him, we got a text message ourselves and it came to the cell phone of one of the clergy people from Ferguson, from, from St. Louis. And she read that out to us and it said this, it came from the young activist we had met with just the night before and they said, we are going to meet on the steps of the federal court building at four o'clock this evening. Are you coming or not? Wow. That was supposed to be our last session. Many of us had already made our flights to go home. And we were there now looking at ourselves and debating, do we go or not? Do we, do we, how do we respond? Listen, I didn't go to Ferguson to be a part of a protest. That wasn't what I thought I would do. But I was faced with a decision. Am I going to take this journey into something that I hadn't planned? 
Well, I decided that I would go. So did many other people. I can still see Shane Claiborne. Many of you may know him in the middle of a protest with his suitcase, his rollerboard bag saying, no justice, no peace. And I was a pitiful protester. I cried the entire time. But little did I know that that was going to be a life-changing experience for me because that's what happens when you take the journey to reconciliation. And that's what Peter's going to discover in our text. Peter is minding his own business. He's visiting a friend, Simon the Tanner, and he is waiting for the noonday meal. He goes up on the roof to pray probably at one of the hours of prayer that was traditional for him. And he falls asleep in prayer, happens to the best of us. And so he's in this sleep and he has a vision. And this vision is a reoccurring one. It happens three times. A sheet in the vision comes down and it has all types of domestic and wild animals on it. And in this vision, he hears a voice telling him that he should rise, slay, and eat these animals that for him was absolutely repugnant. And he in his vision says, no, I would never do anything like that. He refuses uncategorically, no, never. You see, this goes against everything that Peter was ever taught about himself and about his people. These weren't just dietary laws for him. These weren't just customs. This defined his identity. This told him who he belonged to. It helped him to distinguish the difference between us and them, Jews and Gentiles. And he absolutely refused to in some way defile himself and cause himself to be excommunicated from the culture and the community that caused him to know who he is and who he was called to be by God. Well, after three times that same vision happening, it made Peter grapple with something that he didn't know was even necessary for him to interrogate inside himself. He had to look at God's call beyond what, what he thought was the people of God. He had to wrestle with who does God love? And is it just for us that God has come in the form of Jesus Christ? And so now this division between the Jews and the Gentiles is being challenged because the voice from heaven says to Peter, do not call anything and by implication, anyone that I have purified, don't you dare call that unclean. This is a wake up call for the apostle Peter. He is not prepared for this, but little did he know that that vision was the beginning of his journey to reconciliation. Because just a short time after that, there was a knock on the door and because of the vision, he accepts an invitation from a man named Cornelius who has sent his emissaries to go get Peter and bring them back to his house. I am absolutely certain had God not intervened first, Peter would have been as repulsed by that invitation as he was by that vision. But he does decide to take the journey because God's prepared him for it by saying to him, something new is happening around you and I want you to be open to it. Don't call anything or anyone unclean that I have purified. Let me tell you something about Cornelius. 
Cornelius was a Gentile. He served as an officer of considerable rank in the Roman army. He's a good man. He is deeply religious and he honors God. He's not a Jew, he's a Gentile and he honors God. One day Cornelius also has a vision and while he's in prayer, God speaks to him. An angel of the Lord appears to him. And in this, in this encounter with this angel, God says to, to, to Cornelius, God sees you. God has heard your prayers and seen your efforts. God has recorded it all. It's known to God that you are devout and you are in pursuit of knowing God. And so the angel of God instructs him to send for Peter, and he quickly obeys. He sends two of his servants and one trusted soldier to go get Peter and bring him back to his home. Now, it's important for us, my brothers and sisters, to recognize something here, that the journey to reconciliation for both Peter and Cornelius begins with God. You see, reconciliation is not a good idea. Reconciliation is a God idea. Amen. They both have a supernatural vision from God, which suggests that the spirit was at work calling both of them to embark on the journey to reconciliation. God is the unseen spiritual force who enters our human story and calls us, I would dare say compels us to engage in the work of reconciliation. Amen. And so both of them agree to step out of their cultural comfort zones and obey God's call to take a journey that will lead them toward reconciliation. Without that, I'm not sure either of them would have had the, the wherewithal to have broken through the cultural barriers that have kept them divided for so long. So when the men return with Peter and they enter into the house of Cornelius, Cornelius is waiting for them and he's got a crowd of people in his house. He hasn't just gathered his immediate family. He has relatives and friends and neighbors. He has packed his house with Gentile friends. And so when Peter walks in, he is absolutely taken aback. His ethnocentrism begins to kick in and he is overwhelmed by being in a Jewish home. He has taken six other Jewish uh, believers with him. I'm not sure why, maybe to kind of vouch for the fact that he didn't do anything that was unclean or that wasn't kosher while he was there. Maybe, you know, he wanted to make sure to let them know, hey, I didn't have any spare ribs while I was there. I didn't eat anything that they eat. Maybe he brought some witnesses just to verify that he kept his distance. But now he's in their house, even with his witnesses who are supposed to be his, his guys who keep him, you know, from, from being seen as uh, stepping out of his culture too far. But now he's in the house and he's smelling smells he's never smelled before. He's seeing Gentiles and he's close to them and, and he's wigged out. He's freaked out. He doesn't know how to encounter this close, intimate connection with people who is unlike him. My brothers and sisters, this is called the Samaritan factor. It's that notion that I know that there are people who are like, who are different than I am. I know people like that exist over there somewhere, but I've never been anyone in anyone's house. I've never been close enough to know anybody who's that different from me, to eat their food or 
be in their home or experience the differences of our language and our culture. And, and, and it's one thing to think that I'm not ethnocentric or racist or, or, or anything as long as I stay my distance. But now that I'm close up and personal and in contact, I'm scared. And Peter speaks out of that place. I can't believe this, but his opening line to people when he greets them is, you know it's against the law for me to be here, right? Now, I'm not sure that's the best way to say hello for your first visit to someone's house. But Peter is so caught off guard by the fact that he does not know how to be in a space of ethnic diversity that he literally lets it show. It's against the law. I shouldn't be in your house. You know that I shouldn't be in your house. But the truth be told, my brothers and sisters, there's a whole lot of laws that say people shouldn't come together. It was against the law for people to drink from the same water fountain. It was against the law to go to the same school. It was against the law for people to marry someone from a different race. It was against the law to live in the same neighborhood. And I could go on and on and on, and you could too. So just because it's against the law doesn't make it right. So Peter now is experiencing his own life-changing experience in this ethnocentric space because now he's got to examine his heart and he's got to look at how he really feels. And even though he knows that Jesus has said to him, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Theoretically, he liked the idea, but practically he wasn't ready for it. And that's true of so many of us. Theoretically, we're all about reconciliation. Practically, it scares us. And many of us stay stuck in that place. But thanks be to God, God has a way of pushing us out of our comfort zones and putting us on the journey to reconciliation. So regardless of our ethnic and cultural and, and, and racial divides, God is still working. Amen. God is still intervening in human affairs. So Peter is, starts talking. Cornelius says, okay, we get it. It's against the law, but this is why we called for you. God told us to send for you. And we're all here because we want to hear what God has to say to us. We don't want to hear about what you have to say about your laws. We'd like to hear what God has to say to us through you. And so Peter begins to speak, and I'm not sure it was the best sermon in the whole wide world. It probably was a half-hearted sermon where he began saying, well, Jesus came and Jesus lived with us and Jesus did miracles. And, you know, I'm not sure it was an impressive sermon, but that's okay because God can use even our feeble attempts at reconciliation, our feeble attempts at being the people who represent the kingdom of God. The spirit of God is able to transcend even our humanity and our ability to, to not do it well. As long as we take the first step, I believe God will help us and push us forward even when we can't do it perfectly. 
And so Peter gives this imperfect sermon and the spirit of God falls on everybody in Cornelius's house, just like on the day of Pentecost. And Peter and the people with him and the men with him realize we've seen this before. This is the exact same thing that God did for us on that day that we were all gathered together in the upper room, just like you're gathered here. The Holy Spirit fell on us just like the Holy Spirit is falling on you now. The way you're speaking in tongues and other languages, that happened to us too. And that caused Peter to have a realization in that moment. He saw for the first time that he had something in common with these people that he thought were so different from him. He was be able, being able now to identify with people who came from a different racial background, ethnic background, cultural background, and he now said with confidence, I see it. I get it. God does not show favoritism the same way God wants the spirit of God at work in me. God wants the spirit of God at work in you. Just like God came to us, God has come to you. Just like God is working through us, God is working through you. Hallelujah. God wants all people to flourish, my brothers and sisters, no exceptions. God wants the same things for others that God wants for us. That's why we can't keep silent when racial tragedies like the ones happening in our country take place. That's why the church must speak up about racial injustice, immigration reform, mass incarceration, gun control, fair housing, equality in education, economic exploitation, and the death of too many unarmed African-American citizens in our country. Let me tell you something about me personally. I am becoming more convinced that I must speak up about immigration, particularly the, the, the travesty of children being taken away from their parents and they not being able to find them. So I, as a parent, can identify with what it must feel like to have your baby taken from you at the border, regardless of how you were trying to come into this country. And now months later, if not close to a year, you still still have no idea where your baby is. I can recall a time I was in a grocery store with my then little girl, maybe three years old, and she toddled away from me while my back was turned. When I turned around and didn't see her, it was really only for a minute or two, I yelled in that grocery store like you can't believe looking for my daughter. That is the exact same feeling that I believe every single parent feels when they can't find their daughter or their son. And yes, I know that our immigration laws have to be fixed, but I don't believe that the way to do it is to take someone's baby from them and they have no idea where she is. That is what reconciliation requires of us. It's a commitment to say that God shows no favoritism and that what God wants for me, God wants for you. And what God wants for us, God wants for everybody. So like Peter, we must decide if we're gonna take the journey to reconciliation. And I want you to know that it will be a life-changing experience when we choose to say yes to God's invitation. I want you to hear a story 
about a man that was a youth pastor who said yes to the journey of reconciliation. He led a young African-American guy to Christ. This youth pastor was white and he loved this guy and he was discipling him and spending regular time with him. And one of those times they were hanging out, this African-American guy was a wrestler. And so they started just roughhousing, playing around. And as they were doing all of that, the African-American guy, teenager, his name was Bo, uh, grabbed the youth pastor who's white in a headlock. Um, and then the, the, the white pastor grabbed the African-American guy and got him in a headlock and they were going at it. And at one point, this guy, the wrestler, the teenager, who's a big guy, somehow broke out of the headlock that the youth pastor thought was like a surefire deal here. He really thought he had him. And when he wiggled out of the headlock, all of a sudden, the white pastor went, Bo! And he said it with so much alarm that the guy said, did I hurt you? You okay? And this is what the white youth pastor said. He said, Bo, your hair is soft. And the young African-American teenager said, yeah. And he said, do you know what I was told about African-American people's hair? I was told that black people's hair was like steel wool, like Brillo pads and your hair is soft. That day, that young white youth pastor had to start to question things that he had never questioned before. Like Peter, he had to say, I've thought this my whole life. I've believed this my whole life. This is what my people group told me about your people. But if that's not true, what else have I been told that's not true? That's what the journey of reconciliation will do for us. It will make us question what we've thought about ourselves and about God and about other people. And so as I close, I want to call you to take the journey to reconciliation. I believe that that is what God is saying to the church. This moment that we're in demands a decision. And I believe that God wants us, the people of God, who have been entrusted with the ministry of reconciliation to reclaim the credibility of the gospel, the truth and the power of the gospel to heal and bring hope to a broken and divided world. So now the same question that was asked of us in Ferguson, the same question that Cornelius asked Peter is the same question that this generation is asking of you. In fact, it's the same question being asked of all of us who say we're followers of Jesus Christ. And it's simply and profoundly this, are you coming or not? My prayer is that the people of God who are committed to the kingdom of God will respond with a resounding yes, because that is what the credibility of the church requires. And my prayer is that in this generation, we will represent the kingdom of God, that we might see it more fully come on earth as it is in heaven. May it be so. In the name of Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen.